And now that the recording has begun, I can tell you that this is Surreal Politiques, Stage 1, Episode 16, Sustained Action. And then we'll go ahead and we'll play a little intro music, why don't we, you know? You like that music, don't you? Today is July 3rd, 2023, is the current year. And uh, with Independence Day approaching, I spent uh, most of the weekend composing a document. Sorry, excuse me. Composing a document that, as of this writing, stands at over 17,000 words. The working title is Sustained Action on the Path to Sovereignty, and it lays out a substantially detailed plan for acquiring the resources to purchase a great deal of land and house activists with the aim of taking control of a local government. By democratic means, I might say. I'm not done yet. It still requires editing, but I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to use it as show prep today. The um, the level of detail involved, I don't think, makes for good audio in that the, the full document, I should say. So I promise not to come back with a repeat of it later. I'm not going to recycle this. This is something that's really designed to be read, not listened to. But I have adapted it to audio for today's purposes by excluding a great deal of the minutiae. Delving into the specifics of our plan will necessarily focus on measures which, taken individually, provide little inspiration to the high-minded and ideologically motivated nationalist. Lest we fail to capture the listener's attention, this necessitates a broad description of our purposes to eliminate, illuminate, I should say, not eliminate, we don't want to eliminate that, the meaning of each step. The basic idea here can be described as an effort to capture, through lawful political means, control of a municipal government, then using that territory as a base of operations for outward expansion of influence and ultimate territorial sovereignty, a government by and for our people, complete with our own carefully designed citizenship and immigration policies. To accomplish this goal, the strategy attempts to illuminate three key elements, which I define as follows. A well-defined but broadly acceptable among the target audience, of course, uh, objective, which I, uh, I define as securing the existence of our people and a future for our children, you might say. Um, prominent challenges I try to identify in this, is, uh, challenges to that objective, I should say, are terrorism, disreputable officialdom, censorship and media manipulation, financial and economic barriers, all of which I'm sure you are all very familiar with, 
Means by which to overcome those challenges, I would say, are um, short in supply indeed, and I attempt to identify them as productive industry, property acquisition, political migration, political capture, and territorial expansion. We are not going to go through all of these today, since the document gets very long in a tooth at some point, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you, of course. In broad strokes, we attempt to identify and navigate current challenges according to the circumstances we are met with, accepting with all humility the compromises that this requires. This is done in the interest of survival as we work toward establishing sustainable revenue streams through entrepreneurial pursuits. The revenue of those pursuits are put toward providing geographically independent employment to our own people as we expand those industries with surplus going toward acquiring land on which to house those employees. While making money will be a nice feature of this, profits are not the primary purpose. Contrary to primarily profit-driven enterprises, which aim to reduce labor costs as much as possible, our goal is to increase our sustainable labor demand as rapidly as possible to accomplish a political purpose. We are using market principles to accomplish political goals. For more on this, see um, uh, Surreal Politique, Stage 1, Episode 6, Misesian Socialism, and Radical Agenda, Stage 6, Episode 9, Economometics. The land acquired is chosen based on criteria explained in some detail later in this production. But as a teaser here, we can say that a 200-plus acre plot of land can be purchased for under $1,900 an acre in a city of under 1,900 residents. That plot of land, if it were fully developed, could easily house enough people to outnumber the entire electorate of that city. We would be in complete control of the municipal government, and only a rival migration doubling the population could hope to displace us. This would put us in control of a police department and provide us with taxing and local legislative authority. The city is currently controlled by Democrats. If you know anything about me, you already know that I'd mean to flip that city red. This not only provides us with power locally, it puts us in control of a segment of the New Hampshire Republican Party, which will help facilitate outward expansion. Under the protection of that institution, we then repeat and expand all of the preceding measures to include less mobile forms of industry and widen the territory under our control to encompass defensible borders and sustainable natural resources. With these things in place, should the need arise, we may declare independence and do all the things that come with such a daring maneuver. Though, of course, the details of such a thing we dare not commit to writing so prematurely. While the main points of overcoming obstacles will warrant their own categorical responses in sections of the document, as we describe these challenges, we do attempt to conclude each section with some brief notes on mitigating these obstacles along our path. While the writer, I'll skip that part. Noticeably absent um, from the discussion today is any in-depth discussion of public policy. This subject, though of tremendous import, is almost entirely theoretical until we have obtained political power and is thus of minimal strategic benefit for our current purposes. Distant as we are from that objective, there is little sense in fostering dispute among nationalists with such discussions. Under our own territorial sovereignty, on the other hand, such debates will take on a vigorous and high-minded character, the eloquence and substance of which will make for rich history. For now, however, we focus on the present with an eye towards the future. And so I identified a lot of different challenges here, but I've cut a lot of them out for today's purposes. And I'm going to get straight to financial and economic barriers. Because nothing worth doing gets done without money. 
Among the most uh, startling events in the wake of August of 2017 was the mass financial deplatforming of the right-wing content producers and activists. The coordinated attacks by criminals, tech companies, mass media, and intelligence agencies could have been uh, resisted to some degree, but deprived of access to the financial system, those efforts proved futile, and the attacks themselves fatal. The movement that traveled to Charlottesville, Virginia that historic summer is not the movement that is finding its footing today. Given regulations of the financial industry, designed as they are by the titans thereof for their own benefit, the emergence of viable alternatives proved impossible. Even now, though the grip has been loosened enough for platforms like Give, Send, Go, Gab, Pay, and Align Payments to emerge, these, are st- these all still rely on the same infrastructure that made possible the 2017 crackdown, namely the ACH system, MasterCard, and Visa. The next time the nationalist movement, next time nationalist sentiment reaches a level that creates significant discomfort among the financial oligarchs, the same process will ensue and start all over again. Cryptocurrency adoption, though such a seemingly obvious necessity, has been fatally slow. This slow pace has been seized upon by the Securities and Exchange Commissioner, SEC. Acting in advance of broader adoption, the SEC has designated, with various degrees of merit, broad swaths of the cryptocurrency sector as securities. In doing so, they claim the right to impose regulations upon exchanges thereof, just as they do with stocks and bonds, which defeats almost entirely the purposes of cryptocurrency. The SEC has filed lawsuits against major cryptocurrency exchanges to include Binance, Coinbase, and Bittrex, and others. Seeing this crackdown ensue, major financial institutions have run from the crypto sector. This has resulted in, among other things, the end of the BitPay and unbanked debit cards and the cancellation of plans by Strike Payments to launch their own debit card. LocalBitcoins.com, once a popular platform for exchanging cryptocurrencies with cash and other means, has discontinued service. While the SEC's approach is questionable, cryptocurrency enthusiasts always knew some sort of crackdown was inevitable. Had the SEC not taken this novel approach, Congress would have eventually stepped in and created new laws to create a specific regulatory authority. Everybody always knew that was going to happen. The centralized nature of cryptocurrency exchanges makes for a pressure point in the economic system where the government and other institutions of power can exert the most force with the least effort. Decentralized exchanges have emerged, as well as what are known as atomic swaps. But whatever their utility, these only allow the exchange of one cryptocurrency for another. Cryptocurrency ultimately remains a proxy for dollars, and until they are so broadly accepted that one can spend them as easily as they can use a debit card, the need for centralized exchanges with access to the mainstream financial system will remain the weakest link in the chain. This problem cannot be solved without territorial sovereignty, and even this is only mitigation. The United States government, or depending on one's view of things, the central bank will not permit escape from the dollar. Near everyone who tries to do so is destroyed, wherever in the world they may happen to be. They will go so far as to deploy military assets in its defense abroad and pass out life sentences like club fires domestically. The financial system is thus our most substantial obstacle. It must be prudently navigated. Dealings with it must be above reproach, not only abiding by the letter of the law, but avoiding so much as the appearance of impropriety. Attempting to work against this system or even to cheer on foreign actors who do so is at best futile and at worst destruction. Among the most dangerous things the Biden administration has done is cut Russia off from the U.S. financial system. 
as we say uh, earlier in the document um, about the tech platforms, eventually you start walling other people off. You're, you're walling yourself off. You're the one who ends up isolated. The emerging Sino-Russian alliance is a threat to the United States even more in economic terms than military or diplomatic, but those components will fall right behind the dollar, no doubt. While many curse the dollar with varying degrees of merit as the source of all evil in the world, it is the standard unit of measure worldwide for economic value. Even in the event that the dollar was replaced by a superior currency, the disruption of the transitional loan would result in economic chaos. In the much more likely event of a sudden and disorderly collapse of the dollar due to irresponsible foreign policy, that disruption would be even more substantial. Without very substantial resources at our disposal, we would be at the mercy of much more powerful actors in that event, and at present, all the more powerful actors in the United States are decidedly hostile to your interests. So for now, the primary means of mitigating the problems with the financial system are Compliance, compliance, and compliance. In concert with this compliance, we should seek the most diverse array of means to comply as conceivably possible. This will be expanded on as we discuss productive industry later. While being shut out of the financial system is uh, entirely, uh, I'm sorry, while being shut out of the financial system entirely is limited mostly to foreign entities, it should be expected that individuals and entities under our sway will be cut off from particular institutions over time. Having alternative means of transferring and storing value when that happens is vital to our resilience. Helping to advance the adoption of cryptocurrency more broadly is a thing that can combine activism and enterprise for a very rewarding experience. For example, forming partnerships with or establishing our own cryptocurrency point-of-sale systems and marketing those systems to vendors. This writer has seen people profit from this sort of business, and it is a thing worth doing, believe me. Being able to spend rather than exchange cryptocurrency vastly improves the economic options of those who use the technology. Beyond the financial system itself, there exists the challenge of acquiring and allocating resources of any sort. Political fundraising in general, and on the right in particular, has a tendency to rely on benefactors to finance projects charitably, since those political actors who mean to act with integrity are appropriately averse to dispensing government favors to donors, these contributions are necessarily total loss events for the benefactors. The left and those of the Republican Party who aid and abet them are less averse to this and consequently tend to do better in this regard. They also have no qualms about subverting campaign finance laws with, among other things, 501c organizations. The left maintains what could be described as an entire parallel economy to support their activism, though it is so well integrated into the primary economy, it is more as though the entire economic system is a tool of activism and subversion. An activist, read criminal, who is jailed can expect to be bailed out. A politician who is voted out of office can expect to find a job at a news outlet or think tank. A fired reporter can expect a book deal or a podcast. A donor in business who finds his business struggling can expect a bailout or lucrative contract with the government. Now, we would not advocate all of these things here, but they are worth observing. Dissident right reliance on charitable benefactors has too many downsides to list here today, and their caustic effects can hardly be overstated. For one, it puts too much control in the hands of these benefactors. Anybody who can cut off your income can tell you what to do, and defiance of their wishes can leave a project crippled. The absolute easiest way for anyone to ruin a political project is to pay for it. 
It also places too many burdens on the benefactor as there is no upper limit to what one can spend in pursuit of political and social change. And it is difficult in the extreme to measure or um, to measure success or even uh, the impact of one's own contributions to the successes, successes that can be measured. A benefactor who expects no return on his investment can only do away with that portion of his resources, which he can dispose of in such a fashion. And if he goes beyond a certain level in his generosity, he depletes his capital stock and can no longer serve as such a benefactor. If a cause is unpopular and a benefactor is discovered to have financed it, he risks social and economic consequences that stem from that discovery. Given the nature of our financial system, it borders on impossible to make such contributions without leaving official records which are open to scrutiny by disreputable officialdom. And in the case of prosecutions, lawsuits, or leaks by disreputable officialdom, these discoveries can become publicly known. Such funding fuels factional hostility as well as competing groups undermine one another in effort to capture the affections of benefactors. It fosters feelings of hopelessness as resources are depleted with little but temporary excitement to show for them. To the extent these resources finance the lifestyles of the beneficiaries, they are typically only those at the top of the organizational structure. And those left down the and those uh, further down the totem pole are left to fend for themselves financially. These influences breed jealousy, contempt, and suspicion within and between organizational hierarchies, which is invariably seized upon by subversive enemy elements and intelligence agencies. Nearly every time you've heard an activist called a grifter or something to that effect, that was the consequence of this phenomenon. The most successful and sustained operations in the dissident right have been media operations who have used good business sense to monetize their productions. This is one example of productive industry, which we'll discuss at greater length in the document. I'm not going to go over the media business here today. Ideological media operations are not the best example of productive enterprise since they do tend to draw resources from within the ideologically motivated base of support. And many who pay these producers do so in much the same capacity as they would any other activist project. But this writer speaks from experience in saying that there are non-charitable means by which to fund a media operation, and these will figure heavy into our discussion of productive industry, which begins now. Productive industry, in contrast to charity, has the potential to make for appropriately more generous contributions since a benefactor expects a return on his investment, and typically he gets one. Even if a venture is ultimately unsuccessful, these investments are not total loss events. The enterprise tends to provide some of its revenue back to the investor over time and uses some portion of those funds to acquire capital assets which can be sold or moved into another investment should the enterprise fail. People who have money are typically in this position precisely because they do not give it away and offering investments, in contrast to soliciting donations, opens up a far broader base of potentially affluent support. Should that support become publicly known, one who invests in a productive industry that happens to be operated by people with unpopular political views is a categorically different sort of issue from being a political donor in terms of social consequences. Productive industry provides incomes to all involved, not just the management. Hiring like-minded individuals to labor on behalf of an ideologically motivated enterprise forms bonds of trust and reliance that are absent in mere activist projects. Even in workplaces that are not specifically ideological, employees, shareholders, and managers often form bonds not entirely dissimilar to those of a family, and those bonds can be made much stronger in an enterprise with political motives. 
While competition in business is hardly immune to rivalries and hostility, the wider pool of potential resources this creates may tend to reduce internecine conflicts between movement factions and media personalities. While we don't universally see this easing of competitive tensions emerge in the dissident right's primary business function, namely podcasting and streaming media, this is in no small part due to the fact that it is a saturated market with limited clientele. A broader base of industrial output means a broader base of potential clients and greater opportunities for media personalities and movement leaders to cooperate in mutually beneficial ways. Using an overly simplified and perhaps not the most likely of examples, just to illustrate our point, let's just say the rightstuff.biz and Nick Fuentes, America First or AF, both own shares in the same web hosting company. In that instance, neither is well served by the other getting taken down a peg so far as that business is concerned. While they may be in competition for audience attention and its direct benefits, they both have an interest in the other's capacity to promote the web hosting venture, and the more each is able to grow their audience, the more they are able to increase the revenue share, the revenue stream that they share in common. It is worth noting here that this writer knows nothing about securities regulations, uh, but does know enough to say that to buy or sell shares in a company is to trade in securities. This will have to involve the assistance of accounty, accountants and likely attorneys. Now, um, going over the productive enterprise thing in the document that I'm that I'm teasing here, I, I go into a lot of specific examples. We're not going to do that today, but it presents some challenges as I'm composing this thing. And and basically, as I go and I describe these different services, they the the, the services themselves are almost irrelevant to the conversation. Um, it, what, what matters is the, is sort of like the process that they illustrate. Okay. And so I, I identify here some key concepts. The first one being geographic independence. Okay. Now, later stages of the project will involve stationary industries, such as larger manufacturing operations, but we try to begin as nimble as possible. The idea here being to create income opportunities for motivated individuals with similar purposes that have no geographic tether. They can move as they must to accomplish higher aims. Most of these specific business ideas laid out involve entirely internet-based businesses. Others involve equipment that can be moved uh, rather easily. This is not intended to be a permanent state of affairs, but to provide the economic means to acquire land and move activists to that land for the political capture of the municipal government. Um, the idea of vertical integration is uh you're trying to you're trying to align your you're trying to take over your own supply chain okay this is a process where a company acquires or starts up productive enterprises that serve one another up and down the supply chain so as to reduce their dependence on outside parties notably i use the examples of web hosting online media e-commerce set top boxes printing of merchandise and advertising with an eye toward financial services in the future I begin with this largely because it is the supply chain that I am most familiar with and, it, and because it provides geographically untethered potential to employ people who are supposed to relocate as part of the political mission. This may come across as self-serving at times if the reader is unfamiliar with my motives, but the specific supply chains that I am discussing are almost irrelevant. The economic goal is ultimately to vertically integrate multiple supply chains so as to make us more uh, powerful in service to the political project. When you control your entire supply chain, 
it is difficult to bully you. Vendors cannot refuse you service if you own them. Not only does it make content producers more difficult to deplatform, though this obviously figures heavily into my thinking, given my experience, but it also helps to prevent us from being pressured in other ways, such as to fire other employees or assent to popular but destructive political themes. Moreover, vertical integration creates cost efficiencies and synergistic effects um, across the various stages of production, resulting in greater profitability and more rapid expansion. If you've heard the term vertical monopoly before, this is the process that creates one, but I have no illusions about accomplishing such a thing. There's no realistic prospect of us becoming a monopoly web host or media company. We can, however, make ourselves more difficult to put pressure on, and this serves vital political interests. The term vertical integration was coined by Andrew Carnegie to describe how he and his company U.S. Steel had taken control of all aspects of that company's supply chain. And if you don't know, Carnegie and U.S. Steel are one of the most iconic American corporations ever to exist and wielded no shortage of political power throughout this country's history. In the show notes, I link to, um, I link to an article at Investopedia about vertical integration. We're also seeking strategic place placement within supply chains, okay? If you read that piece at Investopedia, one of, one of the things they say is that vertical integration occurs when a company acquires two or more phases of a supply chain. Well, if one is involved in the web hosting and advertising businesses, they are occupying two phases of many supply chains, as it were. Now, we're going to get into great, greater detail with that at, at a later time, but our vision for the advertising business is not merely to sell clicks on blogs. The idea is to position ourselves as an advertising, uh, as an affiliate marketing hub. It puts us as the middleman between many advertisers and many publishers, and it may go without saying that we do not ban our publishers over whining activists. Once you're in web hosting, who will build the websites? Well, that would be web developers. Once you are in advertising, who will produce the ads? Well, lots of creative people. Programmers, video editors, photographers, graphic designers. What other industries does this plug us into, as an example? If you have web developers and ad producers, well, you know, salesmen are going to come in handy. Salesmen are very persuasive. They, may, they might make good political candidates. And on and on we go. At no point do we reach a point of satisfaction and stop. We work as a cohesive group to get footholds into multiple different sectors of the economy and use them for political purposes. Business is also very useful as propaganda, you might know. You see it all the time. Well, corporations and their market power are using it to push degenerate political filth. There's no reason we can't use the same tactics for more noble purposes. Media operations, uh, that portion of this are too obvious to need explaining, but we may briefly note here that the businesses described in the broader document offer other such opportunities. In a section on advertising, I most notably note, when was the last time you saw an entirely white family in a television commercial? I literally can't remember the last time I saw that. Well, if you're making the television commercials, you, you actually like you have some say over that, as it, as it turns out. Such industries are strategically important for political purposes and beyond what they actually outline what um, beyond what we actually outline in this document, we aim to expand into such ventures in perpetuity. Now, as I sort of put in the teaser at the beginning here, we have this idea has sort of a unique relationship with labor. While, while the aim of any company that sells shares has to be to provide value to the shareholders, we can expect at least 
um, the early investors in the project that I'm describing to be ideologically motivated. And in those businesses where not much capital investment is required up front, we don't actually have to, we don't actually have any particular requirement to be profitable at all. Imminently, we describe, um, well, that's actually not in here. But in the document, I described the content creators paywall network, which I've talked to you about before. And if that company prefers to continue making acquisitions instead of paying its shareholders, speaking as the creator of that network, it's just fine with me. The political portion of the project involves getting people who are currently dispersed across a vast territory into one municipality to create a voting block to capture that municipal government. For this purpose, it is perfectly fine if a company with $2,000 of startup capital does nothing more than feed and shelter one, one individual. Contrary to primarily uh, profit-driven enterprises whose aim is to reduce labor costs however they can, our aim is to increase our sustainable demand for labor as quickly as possible. We're using market principles to accomplish political goals. As I mentioned, see Surreal Politics, Stage 1, Episode 6, Musesian Socialism, and Radical Agenda Stage 6, Episode 9, Economimetics. Now, if you look at this, when when this, if you look at the entire thing, one might ask the question if you're spreading yourself too thin, okay? I, I'm outlining a lot of different specific business ventures as proposals to get into. In the writer's experience, it is a common error to start too many projects such that this causes many of them to fail or to progress too slowly. One may get that sense as one proposal after another opens up all manner of cans of worms in, uh, in this plan that I'm laying out. Secondly, the entire point is to hire as many people as possible. We certainly won't begin with the revenue to pay respectable salaries to entire teams to manage each project, but as we'll demonstrate, this isn't necessary right away. Many of the projects I'm talking about utilize overlapping skill sets, and specifically skill sets that are pertinent to the media operations. Web hosting and software as a service and e-commerce, most notably, use nearly the same technological repertoire. It is not expected that an upstart software as a service venture will immediately have such a large clientele load that it will warrant a large team of people. Instead, we have a team of people who are useful to media ventures, also managing a large set of projects which begin as largely dormant. As those projects grow and their user base and revenues increase, we can bring on more people and move them to the territory as part of the political project. Since the fundamental purpose here is to provide jobs to activists venturing into multiple enterprises simultaneously or in rapid sequence, so long as we do not incur obligations we cannot fulfill, provides the optimal situation to increase our labor demand. It also provides the most diverse stream of revenues, which will come in handy when some of those ventures fail, which is to be expected. For many software-as-a-service projects, we can avoid incurring obligations by not billing the customers. We just run ads on them, essentially. If and when the services begin to grow their user bases, then we can worry about getting into contractual obligations with paying clients. And so in this full document that, I'm, that I've been talking about, I go into a lot of different specific proposals, but I'm just going to share a couple of them for now. Um, you, you've heard me talk about the uh, the 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 paywall subscription content service. Some of you are already my subscribers. Thank you very much, by the way. Surrealpolitics.com slash join if you'd like to get on board. Um, we also, I sell things at surrealpolitics.com slash shop. You can actually go buy like t-shirts and stuff from me. 
And so among these things that I talk about in here is merchandising and e-commerce. Merchandise sales have proven a valuable resource for media producers, and the skills acquired in the process are broadly applicable. These include, but are not limited to, website security, familiarity with e-commerce software, shipping, product acquisition, and inventory management, to name just a few. In short, if it can be bought, sold, and shipped, it can be part of the project, and media producers who have experience with merchandise sales can lend expertise to every part of that project. This easily ties in with the content network, the subscription service site, or a member site could easily handle merchandise sales for any other producer on the network who didn't want to deal with it himself. Revenue shares could be worked out um, either on a per-product basis or using the same affiliate program software referenced in the paywall discussion. Now, most of the e-commerce business is fairly straightforward. It doesn't require a lot of discussion here, but I only mention that really as a, as a means by which to get into this. We may here briefly note that among the most successful product sales for media producers are screen-printed goods like T-shirts, hoodies, and hats. Other popular um, items are sublimation-printed products such as coffee mugs and products with uh, similar surfaces on which logos or you know s- or phrases may be applied. Same thing for stickers. While few media producers are printing their own gear, this writer did a good research, a uh, good deal of research on the subject a few years back, and even acquired a sublimation printing kit and heat press shortly before the federal government threw a wrench in the works. The most basic equipment to start this type of business can be purchased for very little upfront cost. And I just did a little quick search of Amazon and eBay. A four-color one-station screen printing machine can be bought for $133 on Amazon. A 62-piece complete complete screen printing kit, including fabric screen printing ink, photo emulsion and diazo uh, screen frame and base, yada, 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 you can buy that for $86. So you're looking at a little over $200 to start screen printing. Not a bad investment, I'd say. A complete print shop kit with a vinyl cutter, sublimation printer, and heat press costs $999 on eBay. So for less than $1,300 plus the consumables, a printing business can get underway. Perhaps more importantly, this is not the type of work that requires highly specialized training or even an, um, an extraordinary intellect. Anyone, can be tra- anyone who can be trained to handle machinery can be trained to handle this equipment. This is an instant job for somebody who is not a tech wizard or a media personality. In reasonably short order, it could be many jobs. To be sure, this is a business model that requires somebody to be near equipment. Just as certain, there are ultimately more cost-effective means of producing stickers and t-shirts and mugs than purchasing the cheapest stuff I could find online in a quick um, search sorted by price. But the equipment listed above, in addition to being cheap, is also portable. You wouldn't have to, um, you wouldn't want to be trucking it back and forth with you every day, of course, but it can be thrown into an SUV and the business can be moved inside of a day. This investment would be a drop in the bucket for the content network once in full swing and a total no-brainer as the print shop could provide printing services to the content creators within the network. Perhaps there could even be um, an exclusivity agreement depending on how contracts were negotiated. A venture such as this could be launched well in advance of the political migration and it could join that migration on a day's notice. Once the sales reached a certain level, which wouldn't necessarily take too long, buying equipment two or three three times the cost would not be a huge risk for an investor. Now, the advertising business is much more than podcast revenue. 
Uh, prior to the United Right rally, I used to bring in a substantial portion of my income from advertising. Amazon alone used to pay me hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars a month. I wasn't the only one. The mass deplatforming that ensued after the United Right rally almost completely shut us out of mainstream advertising opportunities. This might have made a for a more enjoyable listener experience, of course, but it also made monetization more difficult for producers and placed a heavier burden on listeners to support the content that they like. But actually, this is hardly the most pronounced problem with the advertising industry. As I mentioned earlier, like when was the last time that you saw an advertisement like that consisted entirely of a white family? You, I cannot remember the last time I saw something like that. This might be the only thing that's like more jade up than porn, which is, you know, also more <laughs> the advertisements also more closely resemble by the day. In the advertising business, there's basically four models. You got CPM, CPC, CPA, and CPS. CPM stands for cost per thousand because the M stands for mill, and it's the Latin for thousands. CPC is cost per click. The advertiser pays for the click to um, their website. And I'm sorry, in the CPM, it's you pay per thousand impressions. Okay, it's the, that's the model that Gab Ads does. Um, the CPC, the cost per click, is that's what you pay on Google AdSense. Um, CPA or cost per action, this is something like like a retweet, a comment, an email newsletter, sign up, or a software download that typically doesn't involve an exchange of funds. This is the model that Twitter uses. CPS stands for cost per sale, otherwise known as affiliate advertising. This typically involves paying the publisher a percentage or a flat finder's fee for each sale they refer to the advertiser. The publishers, for publishers, the best programs uh, offer recurring payments for subscription services, especially if combined with something called multi-level marketing, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. This is how the Amazon Associates program works, except it doesn't have the um, the multi-level marketing, and I don't think Amazon offers subscriptions. They don't offer recurring payments to affiliates anyway. There is nothing preventing us from venturing into every single one of these markets, but for now, I'll speak of the affiliate advertising market because it is the one I am most familiar with, and I happen to have acquired some specialized software for this purpose, and the acquisition of the software, that's an interesting story in its own right, which we'll get to soon. There are several affiliate advertising marketplaces, which most publishers will recognize by name. These are uh, some of them by name are Linkshare, Commission Junction, Impact, and ShareASale, to name just a few. Some of these platforms have deplatformed our guys. The basic function of these services is for advertisers and publishers to meet and agree to terms. Typically, the advertiser makes an offer publicly. The publishers browse these offers. The publisher clicks to, to apply to the program. Uh, to the programs that are of interest to him, and the advertiser makes a yes or no decision or sometimes makes a custom offer to the publisher. This entire process is automated. I have never had to communicate with a human being in all my years of doing this, with the notable exception of emailing a few individuals when I was rejected from their programs and manually asked to be reconsidered, which occurred with varying degrees of success. In e-commerce, almost all of the sites that you buy from online use one of a handful of applications to process sales. Many of these have affiliate programs either built into them or available as add-ons or plugins. In my case, I do all of my business with something called WooCommerce, and I have an application called Affiliate WP, which serves as the affiliate plugin, which is supposed to de deal with the with the revenue sharing on the uh, on the content network. These affiliate features and plugins 
operate according to certain standards so that they can be incorporated into the markets I've described above. When a customer buys a product or service through an affiliate link, the commission is registered with the affiliate market, the advertiser pays the marketplace, and the marketplace pays the publisher. Last week, I purchased an application to facilitate such a business. It is designed to integrate with popular shopping carts, register sales, accept payments from advertisers, and issue payments to publishers all automatically. The software can handle recurring payments. So say, for example, we wanted to have other people that like aren't part of our thing push this content network subscription. This thing can handle that. Any publisher who um, sent the content network a subscriber would get a percentage of the monthly revenue for that customer during the duration of that customer subscription. It also handles one of the most powerful marketing concepts ever invented, and that's multi-level marketing. If you've ever heard of multi-level marketing, you know what I'm talking about. Multi-level marketing involves getting other people to get still more people to push your ads through incentives. Okay. So like, you know, most advertising is, Hey, come buy my product, right? Multi-level marketing is get other people to market my product who will get other people to market the product, who will get other people to market the product. And you'll all get a percentage of the sale. Okay. So say you send me a sale directly, you get 10%. Okay. Someone who came to me through you, who then gets somebody else to uh, to purchase the product, that guy gets 10%. You get 5% of that sale. The um, Then there's the second ref- level referral. Okay, he gets, you know, he gets 10%. The next guy gets 5%. You get 3%. The next level down, it's 10, 5, 3, 1, say. You could do this as, this is just, the, the numbers are off the top of my head. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. And you can do this as many levels deep as you want, right? Especially if this is done with recurring subscription payments, those of you who are mathematically inclined, you can see where this is going. There's a very, like, strong incentive to push the program. Several years ago, I made a very wise investment for the, I mentioned the affiliate, um, the affiliate app, the affiliate WP application earlier. The the license for that normally costs like $300 per year for one site or $600 for up to 10 sites. I had at one point purchased a yearly license planning to use it for edgygoodies.com, which some of you may know was like this retail site that I set up when I couldn't get, um, when I could no longer get payment processing for the radical agenda. One day, long before that license expired, I got an email from the developers of that application. I guess they were like trying to raise some quick cash. And so they were they were offering a lifetime unlimited site license with free updates for life. It was like a few hundred bucks. I don't actually recall what the amount was off the top of my head, but I knew it was a good deal. And that a lifetime unlimited site license meant that it would not go to waste. Well, you know, here we find ourselves, right? The only questions remaining are what do you want to sell and how much of it do you want to sell? How much could, How much of it can you acquire? You know, there's also a thing in the affiliate marketing, there's a thing called sub affiliates. And I have literally, I have hundreds, maybe thousands of like affiliate marketing relationships. Okay. I go on these marketplaces and I sign up for everything. I don't bother to use almost any of them. I just, I, I sign up for the programs in case, you know, like subject matter comes up because it takes time to get approved for the programs. Right. So, you know, if you and I are talking about something and I want to include something in the show notes and it pertains to an advertiser that I could have a relationship with. It's it's too late for me to, you know, to go and apply for that program at that point. So I just sign up for them and I see what happens, right? Some of these programs offer what is known as sub-affiliates, which is to say um, they, their 
and my relationship with those advertisers can be subcontracted out. Okay. So like my relationship with them, say I get, you know, they're going to pay me the 5% or whatever. And if I want to go pay it to somebody else, that's fine with them. They don't care. Other, other people really don't like that. You've got to be conscious of the terms that you're abiding by. And there's, um, there's a number of useful benefits to that besides the obvious fact that we get paid. For one, it it populates this affiliate marketplace thing that I talked about to make it look like it's more popular than it really is. When people come and they see no activity, they just they just have no desire to sign up, obviously. By populating the system with hundreds of advertisements, it looks like a busy system, even if it is not. Some of these relationships are with major brands, and when people see major brands, they think it's a quality service. This has synergistic effects with the content network, of course, because we have publishers who are ready to sign up as well, okay? So like... You have a content network, you have a bunch of publishers on the content network. You say, hey, sign up for, you know, if you want like advertising, then sign up here and say that, you know, you'll you'll push ads for them or whatever. And so you've got, you know, before anybody, before anybody outside of the thing signs up, in any case, you have um before anybody outside of the thing signs up, you have your publishers and you have your advertisers all ready to go. It's all set. And I haven't talked about this like free blogging platform I have at freetheright.com, but you know, I'll just I'll briefly insert here that the whole point of that system is to run advertisements and thus serves its purpose. And so, you know, I'll just skip that part. One thing that has always set my teeth on edge about the alt-right is its tendency towards what I will describe here as not quite Marxist, but Marx-esque critiques of markets and certain institutions of power. Understandably disgusted with society structured such as it is, there is a tendency toward wanting to see elements of society as such torn down. Since nothing tears down institutions quite like Marxism, one can see how elements of this might become incorporated into various types of social movements, including ours. This emerges in a tremendous variety of ways, from hating police to abandoning elections, with all the dark and often violent implications these necessarily carry, but perhaps the most destructive of these pathologies is a rejection of economics as such, often styled as an aversion to so-called capitalism. It must be here stated, lest the reader be accused of libertarianism, the, the writer, I should say, be accused of libertarianism, that there is plenty to critique about economic policies and behaviors. Nothing, Not everything done in pursuit of money is good, all right? And this is almost too obvious to need stating. It borders on silly to mention it. But critique is all that ever follows from this, and we have seen what happens when people attempt to try to form a culture around critique. It is a purely destructive, or one might say deconstructive, phenomenon. Markets are not evil. Money is not evil. Trade is not evil. People sometimes, a lot of times, maybe by default, are evil. There is no substitute for good people. That's a very important thing to keep in mind. You cannot organize your economy for good if your people are garbage. It's really just that simple. If you have a socialist economy and people are terrible, then you're going to have a terrible economy. If you have a capitalist economy and people are terrible, then you're going to have a terrible economy. 
If you have some bastardized mishmash of an economy where the rich get to socialize their losses and privatize their gains, that's prima facie evidence that you're dealing with bad people and it has not a damn thing to do with markets or capitalism. It's just bad people doing bad things. And the way you fix that problem is neither by nationalizing industry nor by slashing regulations. It's by getting rid of the bad people or at least separating yourself from them, which we begin now. I moved to New Hampshire in 2014 as part of something called the Free State Project. This began as a reasonably good idea, but fell prey to Robert Conquest's second law of politics, which is any organization not explicitly right-wing sooner or later becomes left-wing. The idea behind the FSP was to geographically concentrate libertarians who would make the maximum possible effort toward building what they envisioned as a free society. This appealed to me tremendously because I came from New York and I was not very happy there. I had come to believe this was because the government was interfering in my life too much, and there was some evidence to support that theory. When I came across libertarianism, it was really the first time I had thought about politics in any greater depth than what was uh, being fed to me by Fox News Channel. Whatever the flaws of libertarianism, I can credit it with snapping me out of that particular haze, and that was certainly a thing worth doing. And unlike a lot of things you hear from the libertarians these days, the Free State Project was pretty well thought out, actually. They didn't choose New Hampshire out of the blue. This was a substantial deliberative process. They had an eye towards secession, and they understood that to have national sovereignty, or at least to break free of the United States federal government, they were going to need a few things. You can't secede from the Union if you're landlocked by it, most notably. New Hampshire has a small seacoast and has important trade and military implications. New Hampshire also has fresh water, which you may gather is sort of important. One doubts um, they said this out loud, but I imagine it wasn't entirely lost in the people planning this, that the people here at the time were almost entirely white back then. This is changing rapidly as the federal government in Massachusetts turned Manchester into a dumping ground for felons and junkies, but we're still a lot better off in this regard than most of the country. We used to have an entire section of our criminal law titled Subversive Activities. The Free Staters got that repealed thinking it would promote freedom. I think they miscalculated. Politics here have been changing and not for the better. Tolerance for drug addicts and scumbags, it turns out, is not, uh, does not promote freedom. But our legislature is among the most accessible institutions ever devised. I used to post videos and call them anarcho-lobbyists where I basically go to legislative committees and rail against every conceivable increase in state authority. I might even start going back soon. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to start calling it something else because the content will be uh, changing uh, very substantially. If you're not a felon, you can walk right into the state house and sit down in legislative committees while open carrying a firearm on your hip. And you can tell them whatever you want. I'm not sure if anybody has ever endeavored to tell them about the culture of critique, but maybe I'll give it a shot someday, or maybe you will. We'll see. The natives, they got fed up with the antics of the free staters, as did a lot of the free staters themselves. Part of the reason I worry about the alt-right drifting into left-wing economic ideas is because I see them making so many of the same mistakes the libertarians did. I'm not... I'm no longer totally averse to the government like intervening in the economy, but I know that if you don't create an economic environment where people have to struggle, then they won't struggle. And if they don't struggle, they won't thrive. 
you, you can't just spit in Darwin's face like that and expect a positive outcome. The libertarians did basically the opposite, or at least they did it in the reverse order, okay? They decided that they weren't just averse to the government messing with people's personal lives. They decided to positively embrace degenerate nonsense, right? They weren't just like, hey, you do you and I'll do me. They were like, yeah, drugs are good for you and you should be polyamorous. They didn't just want to leave the gays alone. They wanted to elect transgender people to the legislature, one of whom was recently arrested for child pornography. Robert Conquest was a very smart man. Cross him at your peril. The possible plan I'm about to describe here isn't all that new, actually. I've, uh, I've had to change a few things because the market's changed a bit, and that's very, very unfortunate. Those, um, if you search Zillow for houses in New Hampshire, you come across um, and you sort them by the... Uh, you, you, you sort them by the number of bedrooms descending. Okay, so start with the maximum number of houses and work your way down in the listing. Okay, you can sort them this way on Zillow. Berlin, New Hampshire used to have a whole bunch of these like nine bedroom houses for sale, dirt cheap, under a hundred grand, some some less than 50 grand for nine bedroom houses. And I thought this would be amazing for like a right-wing political migration. In addition to bringing our own people here, we could have recruited from disaffected libertarians. You know? There's a lot of white people here who do not like what they see happening to demographics. They certainly don't want their kids propagandized with gender nonsense at school. They hate the drug epidemic, and they realize that loosening drug enforcement has made matters worse. Those houses in Berlin, uh, Berlin is the way it's pronounced there, have all been sold, very sadly. Um, their, their values have increased substantially, too. It's a shame we didn't do this in 2016 when I started looking at it. Used to be able to get the nine-bedroom house, like I said, for under 100 grand. Now, the most bedrooms I could find under 200,000 was a seven-bedroom house on a 3,900-square-foot lot in Berlin for $198,500. Just, you know, depending on the property markets where you're at, that might sound very good, but it's very different from what it was in Berlin just a few years ago. The next, uh, doing the same, the next result, in that, the next result in that search is a sex bedroom house on a 2,200 square foot lot for 175,000. That's not nearly as good. There used to be also like tremendous wide open plots of land for sale for like a grand of acre in Berlin, New Hampshire. That's not the case anymore. I looked into it. Best I could find in Berlin was two and a, two and a half acres, 2.55 acres for $39,940,000, say. There, uh, after that, there's 1.07 acres in Berlin for $34,900. And that's a very different you know, sort of market than I was looking at in 2016. If we look at all of the New Hampshire listings by lot size, okay, you say, okay, Zillow, I want to know what the largest plots of land available in New Hampshire are under $1 million. What you come up with is uh, the first thing you find is a four-bedroom house on 332 acres in Monroe, New Hampshire, for a million dollars flat. It's the first result that you get. But we can get a much better deal per acre if we forego the house. There's 312 acres in Freedom, New Hampshire, for $684,000. That's $2,192 an acre. 
Wouldn't it be cool to live in Freedom, New Hampshire? Wouldn't it be cool to be the government of Freedom, New Hampshire? That would be a lot of fun. There's 206.5 acres in Alstead, New Hampshire for $379,000. That's $1,835 per acre. I would say this is getting interesting. And for reference, one acre is 43,560 square feet. So let's do a little back of the math. Back of the mac, uh, back of the napkin math here. Our seven-bedroom house in Berlin was on a thir- three thousand nine hundred twenty square foot lot. So, if we imagine that all of the land on that lot can be turned into houses, and I understand that's not necessarily the case, but like I said, this is just back of the napkin stuff. That is eight thousand. I'm sorry, eight million nine hundred ninety-five thousand one hundred forty square feet uh, is our two hundred acre lot, okay? Divide that by 3920, that lot is, uh, and you come up with 2,294 lots. If you build seven bedroom houses on each of those lots, that's 16,058 bedrooms. Now, there's nothing saying we can't build a high rise to the best of my knowledge, and if there is, we can repeal it once we take over, but let's just say for the sake of argument that not everybody wants a seven bedroom house, And some people want a larger piece of land. And perhaps most notably, we don't have the resources right away to build 2,300 homes. So let's really sell ourselves short here and say we aim to build a thousand two-bedroom homes. We cut it way in half, more than in half. That's still a pretty big investment on top of our $379,000 for the land. I don't know how much, I don't know very much about building houses, but I imagine that, you know, a dozen or so people at least who are listening to this podcast do. So there's some more jobs right there. Um, My credit is shot, of course, but I know some of you are better situated in this regard. The population of Alstead is, was um, 1,864 people as of the 2020 census. We could capture the municipal government very easily with just the people who watch surreal politics on Rumble. <laughs> okay, you guys who uh, you guys who watch on surreal um, um, Odyssey and uh, download the podcast and stuff, we'll find stuff for you. I'm just saying, if we give these people jobs, just the Rumble audience could displace the population of this city uh, uh, politically. I should say. Alstead is in a county called Cheshire, and the population of Cheshire County, as of the 2020 census, was 76,458. In the 2020 election, not that I believe it was real, here was the breakdown. Republican, 17,898, or 40.34%. Democrat, 25,522, or uh, 57.52%. That's a spread of 7,624 votes. If we put 37 voters per acre on our 206-acre lot, we can swing this county red without changing the opinions of any of the natives. That might be a stretch, but that's the math. It was closer in 2016. Clinton beat Trump in Cheshire County by 5,188 votes. That's 25 voters per acre on our lot. But statewide in 2016, Clinton only won by 2,736 votes. We could do that. We could change the 2016 New Hampshire general election outcome and still have podcast downloads to spare. It might go without saying that if we control the government there, we also control the Republican Party in that city. The city of Keene is also in Cheshire County. That's where I used to live, some of you know. You know who used to chair 
the Republican Party of Keene, New Hampshire. Last I checked, my old friend Ian Freeman. Now, he's probably about to spend the rest of his life in prison, so I don't think he still holds the position. But for those of you who keep saying the Republican Party is some kind of sealed-off box that no man can enter without a trip to Israel, you're wrong. It's not a serious dispute. If the people in our community are active and we control a municipal government and the GOP in the county is currently out of power without us, but we can help them take over the county, then we can take over the county party. If you think the Republican Party is doing a poor job today, and there is some evidence, of course, of this, then perhaps you might consider doing a better job than them. You ever thought about that? You see how this works by now, hopefully. You make a little money. You join together, you show up, you earn this little bit of power, you exercise it responsibly, then you earn some more power, and then you earn some more, and you do not stop ever. One does not simply demand that the world become civilized. It's not the way it works. You're spoiled if you think that. One does not just request that the savages put down the matches. Order is imposed. Order is forced. That's why leftists describe it as violence. That's why they call it white supremacy, because that's what it is. They sound like lunatics when they do this, because they are. But more in their value judgments than in their facts, are they out of step with reality? We like civilization, so we call it civilized. They do not, so they call it violence and oppression. And, it, you know, at this point, it's just fine with me to say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm really enjoying the oppression, so I get my way and you lose, okay? But if you've ever been through the legal system, you know that there is nothing quite so oppressive nor so forceful as a long, drawn-out procedural formality. There's nothing so painful as that, you know? When you are powerful enough, it becomes an inevitability And it is all the more oppressive for the person you impose your will against. They know what's going to happen and they have to watch it approach them slowly, but you don't speed it up. You just make them watch. It's a terrible thing to do to a person. (laughs) But it really, really is effective in deterring opposition. People, powerful people, they, they rarely make fiery speeches, you know? They rarely march in the streets. They don't get angry. They file papers, lengthy ones. They push buttons and make compromises and methodically churn through the minutia until they get what they want. And since the people doing that today hate you, they're get, you're getting screwed. And all I'm saying is it's time for us to do to screw it, okay? But it's a gradual process. It's an intentional process. It's how white men do things, actually. Persistent, prudent, effortful vigilance. There's no easy solution. Our societies were not built on idealism alone. Idealism drove men to do great things, that's surely true, and though sometimes those great things were matters of intense and rapid activity, they were, as most things that separate man from animals, products of planning and sustained effort over time, sometimes over the course of generations. It might not sound glorious to you to hear me say that today, but if you succeed, 
History will record it as such. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the uh if you would like to be on the program and the more you talk the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Now, let's go look at some uh some live chats here. Uh, I take one Cantwell over 1,000 of these new kid on the block personalities. Seville vets know what's up. You don't owe him loyalty, but you better owe him your respect. Thank you so much, Dave. Dave's great. Um, uh, maybe next time, since three bucks, he says, uh, it doesn't matter what work you do. It matters who you work with. Well, that is very true, my friend. That's, that, that is wisdom indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Dave. And maybe next time. And uh, let's see here. Let me real quick. I'm going to uh, I'm going to play uh, some kind of audio here because I have been talking for over an hour and I, I just I frankly need to take a break. And so I'm going to do that. Um, that was pretty dumb that I didn't actually pull up an audio clip. before. I knew I was going to be talking for a long time and I was like, I should have just had some audio up. That was what a competent broadcaster would have done. But I'm an idiot. And so uh, I'm going to pull up a clip from uh, Surreal Politiques and a prior episode. I have them all sorted in this folder over here. And uh, this is, um, what's the shorter one of these things here? Size, the smaller one, the smaller one. Thank you. Um, All right. I'm just going to play. No, not that. All right. I'll be back in a couple minutes. Today being Memorial Day, it might be fitting to speak I know it's not Memorial Day, we just did this, I'm sorry. Of course, the martial character of human conflict emerges elsewhere besides the military, and perhaps it would be still more fitting to speak in such a broader generality. There is just no shortage of bold men who will not be hailed as heroes, despite courageous sacrifice, be their names known or not. Some, the news records as villains, and our task is in some measure to see history do them greater justice. The United States is not the only country with a monument known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or something to that effect. No culture survives without reverence for its warriors. Some do a better job than others of recovering their dead, but whatever their military prowess, combat is unpredictable and people go missing. It is both fitting and important, then, that there be some shrine to their sacrifice. In the United States, ours is at Arlington National Cemetery. It is guarded 24 hours a day, 365 days a year by soldiers from the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. They perform a visually impressive routine. Changing guard and sentinels, as they are known, have a creed which goes as follows. My dedication to this sacred duty is total and wholehearted. In the responsibility bestowed on me, never will I falter. And with dignity and perseverance, my standard will remain perfectional. Through the years of diligence and praise and the discomfort of the elements, I will walk my tour in humble reverence to the best of my ability. It is he who commands the respect I protect, his bravery that made us so proud. Surrounded by well-meaning crowds by day and alone in the thoughtful peace of night, this soldier will in honored glory rest under my eternal vigilance. While there are over 4,000 unknown soldiers buried at Arlington, the monument contains the remains of but three. One crypt contains the remains of a soldier from World War I, another the remains of two soldiers, one from the Second World War and one from the Korean War. An empty third crypt represents the missing service members from Vietnam. When power changes hands, perhaps it would be best to leave Arlington Memorial to those who died in uniform overseas. But it might also be fitting to establish a new one for those who died or otherwise had their lives destroyed right here at home. The menace we face has surely left more than 4,000 corpses in its wake almost entirely unremarked upon. Many millions more yet walk, but are no less dead, disappeared, and forgotten. I discovered not long ago an old friend of mine had died. To the gentleman who emailed me about it, thank you. 
It's not entirely clear to me what happened, but I knew him to take a pain pill now and then. It seems he got a bad one, one of those fentanyl poisoning stories you hear about all too frequently in the news. He was by no means a soldier, though no more inclined to run from a fight than to start one. He had just happened to catch some shrapnel from one of the lethal weapons being dumped on our streets by foreign adversaries every day. The people who stand up to those foreign adversaries, they might fairly be described as combatants in a war. They're not hailed as heroes. They're not granted a place in a national cemetery. They are called the most hateful of things and demonized in our press and fired from their jobs and denied the protections of our laws. I don't mean to lower in any way the experiences of the warfighter by making the comparison. They rightly have national holidays and resources allocated to them. They enjoy with few exceptions the reverence of the population, and I'm not viscerally opposed to punishing those exceptions. If anything, they deserve more than we give them, and it is quite a stain on our nation when we hear about veteran suicides and the despair that often accompanies attempts to get help from the VA. Our country should aim to place fewer burdens on our uniformed warriors by making more cautious decisions in our foreign policy and by making an organization like the Tunnel to Towers Foundation utterly irrelevant by making sure that they and their families are returned to all reasonable levels of comfort once they have done their jobs. But it is one thing to risk one's life in combat and know that all the energies of the nation are with you. It is quite another to make precisely the same risk without those benefits or even knowing that they are against you. Some have been so overwhelmed by the despair of this that, like all too many uniformed veterans, they take their own lives. Others end up like my aforementioned friend when the despair sends them into the hellish depths of addiction, though perhaps I'm splitting hairs by discerning between suicide and accidental overdose. Drugs, like I've remarked in the past, are a suicide intended to be of a temporary nature. One cannot cope with life and checks out for a while, inclined to someday return. Sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Others who confront this menace have a difficult time coming across such comforts. Such things are very expensive in prison, and it is those prisoners to whom I now refer. I've seen the inside of a cage or two over the course of my 43 years. My reasons for ending up there have varied in their merit. I can tell you unequivocally, it is an entirely different experience to be incarcerated for doing good than it is to be for doing bad. I've been there in both instances, and one knows the difference. It's a very mixed bag. On the one hand, ending up behind bars for doing the right thing can weigh on a man by reminding him of the injustice in the world. Particularly if he sees his cause falter in his absence, this can leave him with the impression that the conflict is lost and that he is doomed to watch helplessly as all that is decent decays and is defiled. On the other, there can be a sort of stoic, redeeming quality to the experience. There is opportunity and suffering. It builds character. When you suffer for what you know to be true and right, you know internally that you are not a simple pleasure-seeking dog or a coward unwilling to incur risks. Most of us, I should point out, need not end up hospitalized or imprisoned to learn this about ourselves, but should you find yourself there, it goes a long way toward removing those self-doubts we all harbor. We've all seen people who don't know what it's like to suffer. They find themselves screaming like lunatics in the street, convinced that they are among the most oppressed people in our society. We tend to mock them for this, but there's some truth to it. They've been deprived in a sense of what it means to be human, to be alive even. Met with no opportunity to struggle, they are weakened and sensing this, they seek out struggle. They aim to tear down civilization itself and see us return to a sort of Hobbesian state of nature, red in tooth and claw more than an ideology. Perhaps subconsciously, they seek to see themselves deprived of the comforts which have rendered them unfit for the Darwinian contest of life. Were it not for the impact on our families, we might hope they got their wish. 
I'd be amiss not to mention the fugitives, of course. There's nothing easy about running unless so by the day. That tracking device you stare at all day when it's not radiating your reproductive organs, it's hard to get on today without one, you might have gathered. But it's harder to get on with one if you want to hide. Cameras everywhere, credit cards, license plate scanners, speed radar, radio-activated highway tolls. You ever see those signs on the highway that tell you how long it will take to get to a given exit? You ever notice that sometimes it might be 60 miles to the destination and it says you can reach it in under an hour, but the speed limit is under 55? The government's not endorsing speeding. That's happening because your toll device is being pinged along the highway and feeding data into an automated system to monitor traffic. Biometrics are a lot more than fingerprints these days. Retina scans, facial recognition, DNA, artificial intelligence, all ever more ubiquitous, networked, and accessible to the authorities. If you're a fugitive and you get mugged, tough luck, buddy. You get shot, better not go to the hospital. Come to think of it, are you even going to feel comfortable going to a regular doctor if you get bronchitis and need so much as some antibiotics? You're going to think about it twice at least, I promise. And when the government completely takes over healthcare, don't think for one second, fugitive thought criminals will enjoy any measure of anonymity in that system. A man who goes to prison, he usually gets out someday. He gets a release date. He at least knows when it's over. Not so for the fugitive. Maybe he'll avoid the authorities until he dies of natural causes. Or maybe he'll be sitting with his grandkids someday and the law finally catches up to him. More likely, he'll have a very short run. There's a substantial likelihood he'll be killed in the process. He'll have no way of knowing the outcome until he's dead or in prison. The latter of which may at some juncture come as a relief after living that way for some period of time. At least then, he can see it out, a light at the end of the tunnel. But of course, he only begins to serve his sentence after he's taken into custody, and the longer he has been on the run, the longer the overall ordeal ends up being. When I lacked internet access, if somebody opened the front door and said go for it, I'd have respectfully declined. No sense in envying a fugitive. War is more than bullets and bombs. It's more than the risk of death and injury. It's a state of total conflict that only temporarily calms for short periods in man's long and bloody history. We are presently involved at this very moment in an information war which, from a certain perspective, might make the clarity of being in a gunfight with a uniformed opponent seem preferable in a sense. There are no non-combatants in that struggle. Targeting civilians is the whole entire point. No need to kill the soldiers tomorrow if the kids sterilize themselves today. But to venture down that path may be to stray too far from today's holiday thing, so I'll save that for another day. I don't have a great deal of respect for America's foreign policy wizards. I don't think they tend to act in the national interest, not of this nation anyway. I read a fascinating book once called The Israel Lobby, which tells a lot about who those interests they are serving are, and it's not a flattering account. Over the years I've been in radio, I've been asked many times if, knowing what one knows about the state of affairs, one ought to join the military. That was easier to answer when I was a libertarian. I just said no. What sense is there in getting yourself killed for some dispute between central bankers halfway across the planet? Just stay home and make yourself happy. But I mentioned earlier that no culture survives without reverence for its warriors. And if there are no warriors to revere, I must imagine a society meets the same downfall. So while I'll refrain from the moment from giving any advice, I'll take this occasion to say thank you to all the warriors, living or dead, whether they wore a uniform or a ski mask, whether they collected a paycheck or a sentence, whether they're buried at Arlington or at Leavenworth, or whether they've been carried off piecemeal by the critters. And if you're fighting a day stateside or overseas, inside the walls or out, online or in the street for that matter. God bless you, comrade. And may we both live to get a bit of rest before death takes us. All right. Welcome back to Surreal Politics. Thanks for uh, sticking with me through that little break there. 
1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Uh, I have a bunch of news stories pulled up, and I'll go ahead and uh, I'll pull them up. Or, you know what, real quick, let me see. I want to show you this thing. <laughs> I thought that this was pretty funny. Um, I think I can do this this way, right? Yeah. So I'll go over here. All right. So you might have seen, <laughs> you might have seen there was, um, uh, there I am. Hello. Uh, there was this thing, there's this shooting happened in Baltimore. Okay. And these things happen from time to time, you know, Baltimore, people kill each other. They do it all the time. And so I always get a kick out of this. This is a bit, I used to do this more frequently. Um, race appropriate Fox news commentators. Okay. Whenever something bad happens in a black neighborhood, what, what invariably happens is Fox news, the white host will act, ask a, a black guest like, so what happened, you know? And, and then the black guest will come on and say something of absolutely no substance. And then he'll be thanked for his, uh, thanked profusely for his profound wisdom. And so I thought that was kind of fun. I posted that to telegram moments ago. Are you following me on telegram? You should probably do that. Um, there's a uh, uh, t.me slash surreal politics is the, you know, the, the, uh, the actual show channel, but I have my own. It's uh, t.me slash follow Chris is arguably more interesting depending on what you're into. But, uh, I should warn you if you're, if you're here for the, the, you know, the tamer content, you, you'll be, uh, you could be troubled by what's on t.me slash follow Chris. So you've been warned. All right. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. Um, the, uh, there's something going on over there in France. Doesn't look like things are going very well in France. Uh, here's an example of what's going on in France. There's a car upside down and on fire. And there's kind of like a lot of this is going on actually. Um, it's a complete, uh, what's the word I want to use? Effing disaster is probably a good way to describe it on surreal politics. I couldn't believe like, you know, it's funny. Like I have not... <laughs> Ever since they fired Tucker Carlson, like, I haven't watched television news almost at all. I check Revolver. I kind of, like, I scroll Telegram a little bit, but <clears throat> I've kind of been doing a lot of things, so I haven't c consumed nearly as much news as I typically do. But I was browsing the, um, if you guys don't follow, if you follow, if you don't follow the Western Chauvinist on, on, uh, on Telegram, you should. Like, they, he, he has, like, all of these different videos of, the the fanatics are rioting and then there's like <laughs> it's funny to watch it over time as a matter of fact because when he starts covering it you see i don't know there's maybe like a dozen guys like marching the streets is is like oh french nationalists are out patrolling the streets and then like as the days go by <laughs> and this problem gets worse and worse these groups get bigger and bigger and i'm like wow you know to watch it happen is kind of cool and I shared one of them where, like, the, the nationalists got their hands on some of the invaders, say, and it was an ugly, ugly scene. And and the French police, they've had it. I mean, they're like, I've got this story up at Revolver News. French police union declares civil war in France. They say it's us or the violent minorities. Uh, so things are really kind of spiraling out of control there. The The situation in France has escalated alarmingly fast. Police are reporting that violent minorities are, in quotes, they're calling them violent minorities, are wreaking havoc across the country, setting things on fire, looting and wreaking widespread havoc. And uh, I'll show you this, as a matter of fact. This is, a, this is a good example, just sort of like, this is just sort of like what happens when you allow your country to get taken over.
That's appealing. Open your borders. This is great. Yeah, they're just like you. Let them in. Go ahead. Um, the chaos erupted after a police car, uh, a police officer, I should say, shot a North African teenager who allegedly uh, failed to cooperate, threatened the police, and sped off in his car. So they frown on that sort of thing in France. You're not allowed to run from the police. The current scene playing out in France looks a lot like the U.S. color revolution that was unleashed after St. George Floyd's death. It's almost as if the predetermined script that everyone's following. France is much smaller than the United States, so their George Floyd revolution is hitting a lot harder. The situation has escalated to the point where police unions are now sounding civil war alarms claiming that they're dealing with an us-versus-them sort of a conflict. And there's just a... What? Is that a woman? No wonder everything's going to hell. So that's okay, you know. We'll just do that for a little longer. You know, we need more of this, I'm thinking, you know. So for the audio audience, what I should explain to you is that these are like masked French riot police with firearms, okay? Like, do you imagine, like, this looks like SWAT teams are trying to take this guy into a van and he's fighting them. And the, and the crowd is, like, trying to, you know, mix it up with the cops. And there's explosions going. This is the France. Like, what's the joke? Like, uh, you know, you want to buy a French rifle? It's barely used, only dropped once. They're like, all right, all right. We, we've got to fight now. We, it's too late. We can't, we can't let this go on any longer. Now they're not having it. And so... You know, it looks like even the French, there's a point at which you can push them past, and they seem to be reaching it. Um, Revolver points out that President Trump, he had, uh, he sort of had a point about the whole... I said, uh, how'd you like France? He said, I wouldn't go to France. I wouldn't go to France. Because France is no longer France. France is no longer France. They won't like me for saying that. But you see what happened in Nice, you see what happened yesterday with the priest who was supposed to be a spectacular man. France is no longer France. It's completely gone haywire. It's gone completely nuts. You know, their goal, as uh, Revolva points out here, it's not to assimilate, it's to dominate. The French should indeed have listened to uh, to President Trump. Uh, man, I'm not going to play that. There's like... It's a big speech this guy goes through. Where, like they, they played this um, a clip of a guy speaking Arabic, and it's... um. They've got subtitles over it, but I could. I was thinking maybe I'd read them, but I'm not going to do it. 
But here's there's um, this guy, Arnaud, Arnaud Bertrand, recently um, translated a communique from French police unions uh, discussing the issue. And here's what it said. He said, we are witnessing a radicalization on both sides in France. This is an unreal communique by the French, by the main French police unions, essentially declaring France is in a civil war and that the police is in the resistance against the government. This is the translation. Translation. <clears throat> now that's enough. Facing these savage hordes, asking for calm is no longer enough. It must be imposed. Restoring the Republican order and putting the apprehended beyond the capacity to harm should be the only political signals to give. In the face of such exactions, the police family must stand together. Our colleagues, like the majority of citizens, can no longer bear the tyranny of these violent minorities. The time is not for union action, but for combat against these pests. Surrendering, capitulating, and pleasing them by laying down arms are not the solutions in light of the gravity of the situation. All means must be put in place to restore the rule of law as quickly as possible. Once restored, we already know that we will relive this mess that we have been enduring for decades. For these reasons, Alliance Police Nationale and the UNSA police will take their responsibilities and warn the government from now on that in the end, we will be in action and without concrete measures for the legal protection of police and appropriate penal response, significant means provided, the police will judge the extent of the consideration given. Today, the police are in combat because we are at war. Tomorrow, we will be in resistance, and the government will have to become aware of it. And so I would say that uh, it sounds like the police in France have just about had it. And that's a good thing, I'd say. I mean, it's, you know, it's a little late, I'd say, obviously, but better late than never, sure. And, uh, you know, it's a thing to think about. Because I know a lot of people in the United States are like, oh, well, you know, if the cops are going to help the other side, then, you know, the cops are the enemy and uh, you should just be in, you know, hostile enmity with the police. And, you know, there's reason to hold them in a degree of skepticism. In in the longer paper that I mentioned, uh, I talk about certain elements of the government. I describe them as disreputable officialdom. And I'm going to try to... Uh, Work that phrase into more of the content going forward. Disreputable officialdom, <clears throat> which stands in some contrast to reputable officialdom, okay? And, you know, one of the things I mentioned is it may help to think of things in sort of like the Christian conception of things, whatever your views on religion or Christianity, that we all, like, come into and leave this world in need of and with the capacity for redemption, say. that disreputable officialdom, some number of them, have the capacity to become reputable officialdom, you know. And you can call on them to become so. You know, you say, hey, look, look at what's going on over there. What we're trying to prevent is that. If you would like to prevent it from happening, then maybe you stop throwing my friends in jail when you have discretion. And I don't imagine that's going to be lost on every, you know, law enforcement officer that you come across. I have a hard time believing that that would be the case, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, I, I'm 100% certain that that's not the case. <clears throat> if you don't treat everybody like the enemy, you have more interesting conversations, fair to say. 
And so I would encourage you to, uh, to go out and have those interesting conversations. They're good to have. You know what I mean? Now, let's see here if I have um, this. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do, fellas. Uh, since you guys are not chatty, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to call it a night. I appreciate you tuning in for this uh, live airing of Surreal Politics. For Je- uh, July 3rd, 2023, I want to say thanks again to Dave R. And maybe next time for your uh, support in the Super Chats. Thank you to all of you who tuned in. Uh, Goyam TV, I don't usually air Surreal Politics over here, but I wanted you guys to get this message. Um, and I appreciate you tuning in. Those of you who did, you guys are great. And, you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is a good idea, the stuff that I'm doing. And I think that some of you are capable of realizing that. So if you were like on one of these other platforms that I streamed to and you didn't have the opportunity to throw shekels at me during the live broadcast as Dave and maybe next time did, you can do that. Go to, um, uh, there's lots of things at surrealpolitics.com slash donate. You can find out more there. You go to givesandgo.com slash SPM. You should really, above all, just become a member. Just join. Just go to surrealpolitics.com slash join. And if you become a member for just 10 bucks a month, I'll give you the code. Agenda 33, all right? That's for Radical Agenda listeners, but I like you guys, okay? So Agenda 33 will get you 33% off your first three months. Become a member. Surrealpolitics.com slash join. I'll see you again real soon. Wednesday, if you're a member. He throws 20 bucks at me as the outro music is playing. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you soon.